The future is an exciting place. It's also a place of great uncertainty and certainly of accelerated change, of accelerating speeds and accelerating cycles. So in today's Humble Pie, uh, we are going to feature a conversation that took place as part of the Humble Mind Learning Group that I host every week, a particular group called Exponential Thinking. And I was uh, very fortunate to have a conversation with a strategic futurist and a futures practitioner called John Cherry, as well as being joined um, by international speaker John Wiley, who was able to really uh, jump into quite an amazing, wide-ranging, very explorative uh, and great conversation that I've listened back to many times now, just around where things are going, the future shock, uh, the technological changes that are coming, and also just exploring different ways of thinking, different ways of looking at the exponential future that's in front of us, and finding a different way, a different way in while remaining open-minded and open-hearted at the same time. That's to come right now on The Humble Pie. Welcome back to The Humble Pie. Very glad to have you with me. Thank you so much. Like I said, uh, today's conversation was recorded uh, a couple days ago from uh, Humble Mind, from the Humble Mind Learning Group that I host um, with uh, like-minded individuals every week. And the theme of this learning group is exponential thinking. And so uh, one of the first sessions, we've had uh, John Cherry come in and talk to the group. So this is the conversation that I thought was just so fantastic to share and to make sure a wider audience gets part of it, gets, uh, gets you know, part of the conversation. So uh, without further ado, here's the conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay, so so for context, uh, Jonathan Cherry, you're a futurist, a researcher, a strategist, a uh, master marketer, a, str a strategic facilitator. You've worked with names like British American Tobacco, Dimension Data, Unilever, uh, Woolworths, to name a few, including uh, the institution we were just talking about, Stellenbosch University. And uh, the reason why I wanted you and your perspective on this is that you've got a very unique take on you know, how brands and businesses in particular are continuing to to sort of make an impact on customers uh, and audiences around the world um especially now in this sort of exponential time where the faster we go the, the closer the future looms uh the crazier and sort of more uncertain things become and so i wanted to to kind of just kick off and uh first get your thoughts on the fact that you know the world is going nuts according to you what what is going on What's got your attention? Um, in the 1970s, someone by the name of Alvin Toffler wrote a book called Future Shock. And the thesis of the book was that this, in the same way that when you travel to a different country, uh, you potentially can experience culture shock. The culture is so different from what you're used to that in many ways you feel disorientated in that new culture. And what he said in that book is that in the future, people will experience something similar, but it will be what he termed future shock, as in the rate of change that is happening in the world is happening so quickly, or the perception is, is that it's changing so quickly, that we will be in a state of shock, suffer from mental illness, 
depression, anxiety, um, our ability to cope with that reality will be severely challenged. So in many ways, what we are experiencing now is not necessarily anything new. It, um, you know, it, it was kind of forecast by this person in the 1970s. Now, understandably, what he was looking at was that he was looking at technological change and how that technological change would really start to affect culture. And in many ways, what he was suggesting is that when everyone has access to knowledge and tools to communicate in real time, what ends up happening is a kind of fragmentation of society and fragmentation of culture. Um, so my feeling is that on a, on a deeper level, if, you, if you're looking at what's happening in, within people and within societies and culture, it's that. It's just that we are now so disorientated with the news that's coming you know, at us. And it's news which is not necessarily um, unbiased news. There are all sorts of reasons as to why people share news and what kind of news and for what purpose. Um, and I think in many ways, we're just feeling completely overwhelmed with the perceived change which is all around us. Um, and that is a real danger because my interest, as you said, Alex, is very much in the future. And the future is really the only place where you have agency. It's the only place where you have any kind of control. It's the only place where you can personally or as an, as an organization affect change. And as the saying goes, futures can be created, futures can be designed, and futures can be made. But in many ways, because of the way that we're feeling in this present moment, a lot of our futures have been hijacked by other people. So they have been hijacked by, you know, for argument's sake, people in Silicon Valley who have a specific agenda to, to sell a certain kind of uh, technology. So they want you to feel that the future cannot exist without that technology as part of it. Now, that's not to say that that's incorrect. It could well be the case. But I think what's happening is that we are handing over our agency for the future to others. And in, in the future's world, you call that a used future. It's not a future which you yourself have and you've designed it for your own you know, purposes and what you want. Um, it's something which is handed over to you. Um, and there's some very interesting case studies where in Asia, a lot of the cities were designed and built to be replicas of cities in Europe and North America, um, which was they borrowed designs which contextually which were not necessarily appropriate for, for their region, but they took a used future and they applied it to their own context. And the same problems that uh, beset cities in North America and Europe then obviously were created within, within their own cultures and their own cities. So that's just a very simple example where um, the future is where you can create what is what is best for you. And I think the real danger right now is, as, as I say, we're kind of blindly just adopting stories and narratives and futures, which seem to be the prevailing future, but we kind of get a sense that there are, there are no other options. You know, the future has been determined and we have no control to change that that future. And that's why I'm interested in futures because mm. that's not necessarily the case, um, but it does take a lot of work to, to change that. Personal work, organizational work, and 
research and yeah. you know, and and the doing of of creating these plans. Would you say then it's so interesting what you said? I've got about five or six other follow up questions, but I'll, I'll probably forget most of them. <laughs> but I kind of want to go back to what you said about this this the sort of the perception of change happening, um, and I suppose that's where your work and. And I suppose and to some degree, when we're talking about agency, that's where everybody's work is. It's to be able to, to sort of work and manage with that perception of things changing, whether mm. or not they change, uh, or whether or not they change meaningfully, um, is maybe up for debate, or perhaps that's a completely separate phenomenon. Just like you mm. said earlier, you know, we've been through these sorts of cycles many times, or perhaps it's something that really isn't, it's business as usual in a bigger sense, in a macro sense, but maybe in a micro sense, it feels it it's perceived to be major changes where it's all speeding up. It's all kind of going crazy. And, and to some degree, like you said, we're maybe a little bit powerless over it. Well, we seem to be powerless to restrict the stimulus, which is coming at us. And I think that's where the real powerlessness comes in. And, and as I say, these, um, you know, the change is obviously happening all of the time. Change is constant. But in many ways, there are a lot of things that haven't changed. Uh, the way that societies work, the way that human beings work, you know, the, the way we think about things, uh, in many ways, our own brains are ancient. And that's why we're struggling with all of this stimulus because our brains are just not, you know, evolution hasn't allowed it to, to be able to process so much bandwidth of information that's yeah. coming at us at any one point. So I suppose my, you know, my feeling is, and this is my own personal experience, is that because we're an always on culture, we have, you know, our phones are basically an intravenous drip of information, which is being fed <laughs> yeah. to us all of the time. Uh, and that information is in many uh, instances quite shocking in nature. You know, artificial intelligence arrives. The first thing we do is we go, oh, my goodness, my job is probably in jeopardy. You know, when? Is it this week, next week, 100 years? I need to start thinking. I need alternatives. So you then ruminate these things. You get into groups. It's on the radio. It's on TV. We discuss all of these things. And all of a sudden, something which is a technology which has actually been around for quite some time, all of a sudden becomes a major threat. And experts are telling us that this could be a major threat, and then it becomes a threat. So that threat in our minds yeah. all of a sudden becomes real. And the unfortunate thing is, is that what we believe in comes true. The, the future that we buy into is the future which we then create. And the real danger is, is that there's not much variety in the futures that are being sold to us. Most of the futures are dystopian. Most of the futures that are being fed to us are that the world is aging. Uh, economic growth has pretty much come to an end. It's like a giant AI Black Mirror is here episode. to take our jobs. Yeah. You know, you switch on Netflix or some entertainment and there's Black Mirror and, you know, like you just can't get away from it. Yeah. It's, it's a narrative which is pervasive. And I think that that's hugely disempowering. Um, and in many ways, as a as someone who works in the space, I'm very, very cautious to talk about like trends. You know, you, you have like these trend hits and you can tune into millions of websites and watch lots of, you know, YouTube videos and sign into podcasts where they talk about the, the changes that are mm -hmm. happening every single day. 
But in many ways, if you have to focus on those changes, you're going to drive yourself absolutely crazy. Um, yeah. And that's just not the way to do it. What you need to do is look at the big patterns of, of history. You know, what, what are the major changes and how did they affect mm. uh, civilizations? And I think it's far more useful to look at things like how did the Industrial Revolution evolve over time? So how did it start? How did it evolve? How did it kind of like give way to the information age and the digital revolution and try and understand where we're at based on that major pattern of change, mm. which, you know, we can track from history. So I just think that, the, you know, at times there is value in understanding how granular trends are evolving, but for the, the average person, I just think it's, it creates noise and chaos in people's mm. minds, which is disempowering. It, um, there are far yeah. better ways of thinking about the future. Yeah, uh, uh, it's interesting what you say about trends, because because perhaps as you know, access and technological kind of determinism and all that has made everyone who's everyone you know join the internet and now a trend which might have been uh, a big concept twenty or thirty years ago. Nowadays, there's a new trend every day, um, right. you know, and so everything is kind of becoming nicheified. You know, look at uh, CNN in the 90s when they covered the Gulf War, you know, the first kind of live reporting, war reporting right. from the front lines, right? Nowadays, you know, when that kind of thing comes on, uh, we switch it off. So the trends as an idea, you, you know, it's almost as if it's, it's kind of losing its impetus. I, I'm interested in your kind of futuristic or not futuristic, futurists toolkit on how you go then, how, how do you go about in making sense of sort of the future? Is it about understanding the past better? Do you look for different kinds of patterns? How do, how do you look at what's happening? Yeah, so, you know, as you say, I, I like the, the, your use of the word toolkit. I think um, professional futurists are, they are practitioners. And when you work with a group of people, you facilitate their thinking. So, in any situation, what you've really got to understand is what is required from the group of people. And you have to spend quite a lot of time in understanding what they say verbally, because they might say, well, we need a new strategy as to how we need, you know, how we must grow this business. We're faced with technological change. We need to adopt technology. We need a strategy as to how we're going to do that. On the surface of it, yes, that might be the case. But what do they actually need? Why are they all of a sudden requiring growth? Do they really need growth or do they rather need to innovate? Do they need to shift their, their focus? Do they, need, um, do they need a deeper understanding of potentially where the world is going and, and how they can fit in in different ways? So a large part of the toolkit is first understanding what the job is. Um, and that can take a while. Then what you've got to do is you've got to understand rights. Now that you understand that the, the question is futures related, because it might not be, it, it might be, it might be psychology related or it might be culture related. But if you've now determined that it's futures related, you now need to frame and you need to scope exactly what it is that you're trying to determine. What are the outcomes that you're trying to achieve here? Um, and once you've got that, you understand that any individual or organization doesn't work in isolation. It works within the context of these great shifts. So, right. you know, in futures work, you think at a minimum of five years to 10 years time. So in five years and 10 years, 
there are certain behaviors and actions and trends and innovations and ideas which are emerging now, which have implications for the future. So what you then need to determine is how might these things shift and what are they going to impact? How are they going to interconnect with other parts of society? So if you just take a simple example like artificial intelligence, that's a technology um, innovation, which immediately now you can see how it's starting to affect culture. So you've got something which is a technology and it's starting to change the way people work. We just listened to John tell us about how he's changed the way that he, he writes scripts. Now that's in a very short space of time. In, a less, in less than a year, he might've hired somebody to kind of sense check what he was thinking before. But now he's, he's you know, working in, in a more isolationist kind of way. So if you're working in a more in, in an isolated environment, what does that then mean for the way that you develop your ideas? Because before you would have developed them in within community. Um, and potentially that's why your channel, Alex, is now, you know, offers real value because we're all working as individuals. Yeah. It's nice to actually then just connect with a community of like-minded people in a forum like this. So you can see now that just in a year, we've mapped out some changes, but a real value would be to say, right, you know, how are those things gonna affect countries and continents and businesses in five years time? Now you can never predict that, but what you can do is say, right, here are some interesting ideas. If we have to take AI and we have to take, uh, you know, the, the, the mindset where people are quite protectionist and they, they're trying to close their borders and, you know, they, they don't want immigrants coming into their into their countries. You combine those two together and you say, right, give it some time, give it some political upheavals and all that kind of stuff. What might that then mean for how we build economies in five years time? Uh, all of a sudden, governments might not be wanting to attract young talent. They're going to be wanting to attract, uh, you know, artificial intelligence solutions, which they alone own. Yeah. So that's the first step is that you've got to understand how the conditions might change because now if you're thinking right how am i going to now work in that or how's my business going to create products in that new environment you would look at that one scenario or that one future and you would say right should the future play out like this this is how we would then operate but yes. there's there's never just one future there are multiple futures so that's why you use something like scenario planning to understand the various scenarios and based under those scenarios, what would you then do? And the value of futures thinking is not necessarily in kind of getting a prediction right and then having the right strategy and sort of lining up the dots, if you will. What it is, is it builds some kind of mental resilience within that organization. Mm, so that mm. no matter what actually plays out, mentally you're prepared. So that whole thing that we were talking about, future shock, you can really train yourself and upskill yourself to be far more in control of your future. As you said, the future is uncertain, but that doesn't mean to say that the future should then control you. So if you are very good at futures thinking, if you are adapted this kind of this kind of work, if, if you have a, a, a futurist on board, um, if you're doing these kind of exercises all the time, you're just going to have a lot more confidence yeah. to then innovate and work within whatever context is mm. is presented to you I, I i love this concept of okay so sort of in the toolkit is you know 
a great deal of imagination, a good understanding of history uh, and of cycles, but it seems also the ability to, like you said, not just predict or to sort of think about what changes might be coming, but also to be very observant of the reactions that people have to these changes, right? As they kind of like, oh, okay, this is a new force in my life right now in the way that I'm dealing with my business or whatever it might be. Now I'm going to have to innovate or create something or completely change or reimagine something. So it's almost as if there's this kind of probabilistic thinking, which, which I think is an insanely invaluable human kind of skill. You know, there's something very human about it, but there's something I think very valuable about that. Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of probabilistic sort of thinking and or scenario planning, as you said, and how that works or how somebody could go about that with, uh, you know, especially if they don't, you know, have a university degree or, or need to be a professor. Right. So, so if you look at this category, which let's just call it um, futures research or futures thinking, um, so it's it's studying and trying to understand how the future might be. You know, what what agency do we have in the future? If you look at this as a as a discipline, in many ways you can see that there are two distinct strands. The one strand is very much an empirical scientific strand that uh, emanated out of North America. So after um, after World War II, uh, during the Cold War. They needed strategies in order to understand how a doomsday scenario might play out. And that's where scenario thinking, scenario planning really was was cultivated. And that is very much about, uh, as you say, probabilistic thinking. It's about forecasting. Um, It's quite scientific um, and very, very, very useful. On the other hand, there's an emerging line of thinking, which is more Eastern in its uh, in, in the way that it's presented. And that doesn't necessarily say that the scientific futures thinking is, is wrong. What it says is that it's just one layer of, of how we need to be thinking about the future. The future really is a lot deeper than just that, that single layer. And the Eastern side of things really starts to inquire about what assumptions are baked into the way that you think. Right. And where do those assumptions come from? So in many ways, when we talk about used futures or we talk about disowned futures, um, I, I think of my own situation. When, when I was just leaving school and I needed to choose what university degree and which university I was going to go study at, in many ways, I didn't have a choice. My choice was kind of handed to me by my parents because they said, listen, you're only 18 years old. You can't go and be a musician and go and you know, study music. You're going to end up being a drug addict or something like that. So you need to go to a recognized university and go and do a nice business degree and you know, follow a path where you're guaranteed of getting a job. Now, that was not a future which was mine. But in many ways, I followed that path and I kind of forgot about that story. I forgot about like how I started on this path. Mm, it was a future which wasn't my own, but I followed the path. I got the degree. I then went on to do a couple of other degrees. I worked in business. I worked in marketing, as you say. I tracked that path. (laughs) Now, I think about the future in a very commercial sense. I work with business. I can speak the business language. But if I have to now try and unpack where my own thinking of the future is and where does it come from, I can track it back to a future that wasn't even mine. My future was actually music. 
So actually, if I want to really try and tap into what I actually want in the future, I have to really listen to myself very, very carefully. And finding my own voice in the noise of the last, you know, 30 years yes, yes. is incredibly difficult. Mm. But the fact is that most strategy, most plans, most visions don't actually play out because they are not visions which really motivate the person. So if you really want to find a, a future which is preferable for an individual, you've got to dig super deep into that person to really understand what motivates them mm. or to really find what motivates an organization. Because organizations will say one thing, they, ah, they want growth, you know, we, we want to grow the business. But in actual fact, potentially that top layer of management, they just want to keep their jobs. They want to keep the $3 million bonus that they get at the end of the year. And the way they do that is don't rock the boat. So when they come and say like, oh, we want growth, we want growth within these boundaries so that it doesn't rock the boat too much. Um, so don't come with like radical innovations, which is potentially going to be risky. Um, but that's not necessarily what they're saying to you. So that's why the Eastern tradition of futures thinking, it really is about unpacking what's deep down within yes. you know an organization within an individual that is unspoken but is actually the driver of the way that they think so you're trying to understand what the what the pervasive mindset is uh, because that mindset is very very difficult to break free from even yeah. with the most beautiful looking plants i'm i'm quite keen to just uh, um bring in john for this because because I, I feel that this is really interesting uh, th also that you called it an eastern mindset because if anything it's it's kind of moving away from the corporatized individual if you like uh and trying to map out that future but rather going to an individual where their personal concerns or their personal circumstances are, are now part of the picture, uh, are now part of the assessment of what kind of future is more likely to happen in front of them. And I think that there's something maybe even slightly deeper to explore, which is I think often the the way that the sort of, uh, there's a kind of a consumerist type of line of thinking here where, you know, uh, you're, you're incomplete as you are. And in order to fill that gap, you need to go out and buy stuff, right? <laughs> now, the, now, if we're kind of looking at an Eastern sort of bent to that, I would almost go as far as to say, you know, that might, the answer to that might be, well, you're not incomplete as you are, you actually are complete, you just maybe need to realize it, or have a prompt to realize that. John, your, 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 your thoughts on that? Um. I, you, you covered a lot. I, I think that um, I, I, I'm, I'm stuck with this, um, uh, the, the future shock work that we were discussing as I, as I think about what you're saying and bringing that forward. And the, you know, the death of permanence has caused this uh, disruption inside the human experience. We don't feel like we have anything we can anchor ourselves to. Um, and we're not going to find it in the Western mindset currently. Uh, because of the industrial revolution and, the, and our most recent history, it's neither right nor wrong. It just is. So when in, in the West, when we don't have an Eastern philosophy, let me give you an example. Even in the in the here in the United States, before it was colonized, the American Indians had a oops, sorry, had an amazing outlook on on life that kept you grounded. Um, you know, it's kind of like when you sit and stare at a river, 
and over the course of your life, you can see that river change. There's change happening, but it's happening at a, at a transformative way that mm-hmm. we can understand and internalize. Mm-hmm. And we can hand that change down to the children in the tribe, in the, in the clan, and explain our connection to it. Well, now our change happens so rapidly. Um, you just look at this one subject of quantum physics and try to put your mind around that in the last 80-year change there. You'll have a meltdown. And then you try to forecast that to the future, and you can't explain it to your children or to yourself. And this is the cause of all this angst that we're going that we're that we're going through. I don't know if I'm answering your question, except yeah. to say that I find that like my why right now for me, and that I, and that I'm putting myself forward to help others is connecting to that part of me that doesn't change, because inside the human experience, when you close your eyes and you shut off all the change that's whizzing by at mind breaking. The, the, the solution isn't shutting all the change down. It's going internal and connecting with your I amness, your, your posture of self-awareness. I am aware that I'm aware. And when I close my eyes, there's no one else inside this bag of skin, but me in there with me. And I, I change at a different pace and, and I'm getting older. I, I, I can, you know, so if I connect more with the earth and can connect more with my awareness of being, I can better understand the rapid change going around me and I don't get caught up in the drama. Um, and, and that all has the, 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 the Eastern position uh, of understanding and philosophy speaks more readily to that than the, than the most current Western uh, traditions. I'll, I'll be quiet. I could go for another 20 minutes. I won't. You asked a, a kind of a broad question and that's what uh, popped, popped up. No, it was great. I'd love to get John's thoughts in a minute, but maybe just to attach to that is how, how then does the futurist's task change when now the kind of the variables or the, or the, the, the kind of the, you know, the smallest common denominators people in an everyday level are now adopting those sorts of mindsets when they're not just economic units anymore. They're not buying cars and a chicken in every pot and all of that kind of stuff that we're maybe used to. But now there's this kind of free agency element going on. Does that, does that impact how we sort of think about the future, John, Cherry? Well, Alex, I think the good thing is, is that um, futures thinking requires an open mind. And I think the real challenge for any futurist is that when people are so locked into their assumptions or the ideologies or just like their style of thinking, it's very difficult to kind of offer alternative pictures of what the future might look like in under those conditions. So I think if people are open to alternative ways of being or alternative ways of thinking, that is like a major plus. And you know, in, in many ways, I think, you know, I don't know why, but the, the world seems to be like so binary. There's, you know, we, we've come from this tradition where there's a right and wrong and you must pick your side and kind of stick with that. But in many ways, like what's required is very all sorts of different types of thinking. Um, you can't just say that linear or analytical thinking is wrong and you know you need to do futures thinking or systems thinking. That is not the case. I don't want to fly an airplane that's designed by someone who's a systems thinker. I, <laughs> I want an engineer to have designed that plane uh, because I know that in the context of aviation, that's, that's what works best. 
but I think what's really important is this combination and, and finding like the, the best combination for, for any context. And I think that's what the value of, of futures is, is that it's about understanding how, you know, what's, that's why it's called futures, because it is purposefully a multiple. There is no one future. There are many, many futures. And what you're kind of like nodding to is, is the complexity that, that exists in the world. And saying that you understand that there is complexity and it's impossible to try and understand yeah. what's, what's really going on, but you're humble enough to, you know, explore it. I think that's why you've called this the humble mind. You that's know, it. You, you don't, <laughs> you're hired. you don't have the answers, but <laughs> yeah. you're bold enough to just experiment and, and that's to it. see where it might take you. I, I, absolutely. And, 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 and I think that also for people who are starting businesses and, and going on all sorts of journeys, whether it's an internal journey or an external one and you're helping people and you're wanting to be of service and give birth to a product or an experience that helps people or solves problems, I think that the ability to kind of, you know, extrapolate your thinking into a couple of different types of possible scenarios uh, rather than kind of only, you know, nailing your colors to the mast and planning for one is a really strong, you know, entrepreneurial plus. It's, it's a kind of an instinct that I think should be nurtured uh, in and amongst people. I think even at the, at the school level, you know, clearly we would benefit if uh, we weren't just taught, you know, this is geography, this is history, this is this, but also to kind of nurture another side where you're, you, you know, whether it might be in the way you debate or perhaps, um, you know, entertain more colorful or creative versions of history or whatever it might be. But I think this, this right. element of different types of futures is so, is, I think it's powerful because we're so used to thinking, just like you've said, that the future is this kind of one long arrow from the past into the future and that's it. You know, there's this unchanging concrete kind of thing and you are powerless right. to kind of stop the train, right? Exactly. And, you know, for many people, I suppose, that don't have an open mind, that is their reality. Um, there's a saying that we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. So in order to see those multiple futures and to, to see the future as a place of creativity, you yourself need to, need to change. You need to train yourself to, to do that. Um, and that really is what, what the work is all about. It's yeah. in that training. Uh, but in many ways, what I've found more and more um, is that I've put myself on an information diet. And I was saying to you last week, you know, the, the family went away. And you know what? We purposefully didn't look at our phones. We purposefully didn't watch TV. We, I purposely didn't even read any books. Or I, did, I tried to do as little thinking as possible because my job is thinking. And the only way I can think clearly and the only way that I can not have this feeling of being overwhelmed when I go through that process is to make sure that I have periods of no thinking. So I need to try and get to a point where, you know, I, I meditate every day. I've really got to actively try and clear my brain because everybody's trying to colonize your mind. It's uh, <laughs> it's a fight, you know, and, yeah. and I'm starting to get pretty ruthless about it. And at one point, like, you know, Probably every six months, I go and unsubscribe from email newsletters, and I'm ruthless. I'd, I'd rather start from yeah. zero and then add than, you know, do it the other way around. But I think that's, that's what we really need to be doing these days, is that information is not something which, you know, you need to hunt for. 
what you need to hunt for is silence. You need to hunt for that opportunity to yes. think clearly. Um, and that's where the power is. The, the, it, you know, get to the point where you've got a nice flat lake of thinking. And then you can drop a pebble into it and it's going to have a nice big ripple. Um, mm. But, but getting that. there, getting there is tougher. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I am. Um, so yeah, it's almost as if, you know, as as things kind of become more exponential, and you know, more and more of our attention is is not only at a premium, but it also seems to seems to be sort of everything everywhere all at once at the same time. There's this weird thing going on with our attention, isn't it? Just like you said, and so now we're, yeah. we're needing to treat it as if we're, we're kind of almost hollowing out that whole part of our minds where there's, you know, you're returning to nothing. Uh, instead of going back to everything, but it's the only way to unclutter, only way to kind of, you know. And that's real empowerment. You know, as as John was mentioning, you know, this idea that, well, Alex, it might have been you talking about consumerism and uh, about how we are programmed to kind of have desire that is given to us. And then our action is to purchase or join a community or feel something about something. But again, those are not necessarily ones that we want. That's, you know, research that goes back to Freud and his, you know, and his, uh, his nephew, I think, who started PR in, in the United States. You know, PR, advertising, branding, marketing, these are things which use very powerful psychological PR triggers. PR was started by Freud's nephew. Right, Edward no Bernays. No way, I did not know that. That's insane, and it speaks volumes. <laughs> yeah, Edward Bernays started PR, and his first campaign was called Torches of Liberty, where a, a tobacco company came to him and said, listen, we need more people to smoke cigarettes. So his campaign was that he got these uh, uh, debutants during a, a parade in New York to lead the parade with lit cigarettes in their, in their hands. <sighs> And they called it the Torches of Liberty. So these Brilliant. were women who were going forth and they were empowered because they were smoking cigarettes. And because of that, people were like, wow, these are empowered women. They're beautiful. You know, we also want to smoke cigarettes. And it's a complete, you know, Freudian hack. It's yeah. the first <laughs> <and> influences. <laughs> absolutely. So I think, again, you've got to go back in history to understand, you know, understand what's going on now. Always. Uh, understand yeah. as you say influence they were the first influences it's not new you know it, it's a it's a, a mind trick um so i think if you really want to start taking back control the real answer to that is do less you know think less read less just cut off cut you know social media is it's just the worst they say it's bad for teenagers i can tell you now linkedin drives me crazy uh, if ever I want to depress myself, I just go onto LinkedIn. And it's <laughs> it's not that people have bad intentions on LinkedIn, but the way that I absorb it and how it affects me, I have to be very, very careful with it. Um, yeah. Like you said, it's a diet, right? Yeah. Right. And exactly. You know, you don't eat junk food day in and day out. You'll, you'll kill yourself. And it's the same with information. It's become so pervasive that you've just got to be very, very careful with mm. what you put into your brain. Uh, Absolutely. Because, because it really can affect your vision of the future. And that's something which is sacrosanct. You know, that is yours, yours to keep. And when you let other people into that space, they are literally colonizing your future. So 
Yeah, it sounds yeah. pretty radical. And even as I say it, I kind of cringe. But, you know, it's it, it, that's how I feel about about these things. Colonize is a great word. John, you had you had something on your mind. I do. That I, I love this conversation. That colonize your mind is an awesome way to to con, con, conceptualize what's going on. What I want to point out or, or bring to the conversation is there's a nuance that that I think bears recognizing that there's a difference, at least today, between want and desire. I may want a new pair of shoes. I may want a fancy coffee. I may want to, you know, do something like that. And 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 so the the torches of liberty and all that was speaking to the to the wants, and it's continued now on on hyperspeed into the current you know you know way things come across. What we've lost connection with, I think, broadly, is deep seated desire. That, that forms one's life's purpose with a mission and a why that catapults you forward, that come hell or high water, I, this is what I am creating in my life. We Early on, uh, uh, John said um, that uh, you alluded to, you know, we create the life that we want. And when that, I, I, I would say we create the life we desire, that which we hunger for, that goes beyond the surface want, but it's more of that deep seated, deep inside. And to John's point, when you unplug in whatever methodology one needs to unplug and you can, and here's what it comes down to. We've lost the art of noticing our deep desires. We're so busy hearing the noise of the wants and the colonization of what everybody wants my mind to do and me to be thinking about that we've got to, and this is what I've given myself over to for probably the last two years, is learning to listen to the desires of my heart and learning to notice it. And I can't notice until, as John pointed out, the water gets calm. And when the water's calm and I throw in that pebble because I found my desires, my deep-seated desire, and I throw that pebble in and I can watch and foresee the future, of my deep-seated desire rippling out across the calm water, I see my path forward. I know what to do next. And so when I get up, I'm ready to go. I'm resourced internally and I'm empowered. And this is the art that we used to have as a species broadly, that we've lost hold of because of the speed of change. And so for us to teach people and to encourage people how to notice the desire. And I'll end with this. Neville Goddard, uh, who died in 1972, uh, has an amazing um, one line, one sentence in his book, it God God smacked me. He said one sentence, he said that, that desire is a form of spiritual language. And it just leaped off the page. And I've been sitting with that for two years. And, and, and putting that over the body of his other work and realizing that that, that, that sentence is what led me mm-hmm. to this diatribe I'm on now and understanding the difference of want and desire. And so, John, kudos to you because you're tapping into your desire and we've got to unplug mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I, yeah, I'd love to hear your response, but John, but also you, I think in many ways that a lot of the brands and the businesses that 
that that work around us to sort of you know take our attention and ultimately sell things to us they're really in the business of hijacking desires aren't they and i don't necessarily mean that hijacking in a negative sense but they're mm. they're colonizing <laughs> you know these they're kind of managing them for us i suppose right um so so perhaps some of the other things in the toolkit that we can learn to use or to to cultivate um to face this sort of exponential future is to is to learn how to deal with those and maybe it starts with what john said which was noticing it at first just mm. knowing that that kind of thing actually exists and that things yeah. are maybe a little bit differently wired than we might have thought yeah john to your points i i agree with you and i i do like the way that you've um sort of highlighted each one of those things is quite different and i think your point is well made because when you're working with teams and you're working with strategy and uh, visions of the future, those plans often fall apart because they don't tap into people's desires. And a lot of the future's work is trying to understand how you not only affect someone's sort of the microcosm of their thinking. Because if you tell somebody what to do, they're probably not going to go and do it because it's not of their own volition. Uh, but if they have the idea themselves and they stumble across it, and it's an idea which in many ways has formed in their own minds, you then start to tap into a deeper level of motivation or conation. I think that's the, the, the official term, where someone is compelled to act in order to achieve what it is that they want. So that, that really is what you're talking about there about desire. Because in many ways, you've got to get to a point, if you're trying to create a, a, a different kind of future, you have to believe in that future enough that no matter what people say to you, you're just going to you know, ignore them. You're going to carry on along your path because that path is going to be difficult. And that's really what you're talking about there about desire and tapping into that desire and listening to yourself and trying to get to the point where you can hear your own voice. So you even know what those desires are, because as Alex says, a lot of the time your wants and needs and desires are kind of handed to you by marketers. Um, yeah. You know, at I, my I, age, I, 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 sub I submit to you, John, that's how we reclaim our agency. Right, exactly. So Sorry, at my John, age, I'm, I'm, you know, programmed to desire to drive a C-class Mercedes-Benz, but I, you know, uh, I couldn't think of anything worse. Like, I don't, I don't want to drive a C-class Mercedes-Benz. It's a lovely car, <laughs> but I do not desire it as much as Mercedes wants me to. Um, but, you know, and I think that's what it is. You, you know, when you reach a certain point in your life, society tells you that you should be at the pinnacle of your career. You should be making a lot of money. Your kids should be sort of uh, out of school or nearing out of school, and you should be in your prime, getting ready for retirement. But now, even the concept of retirement, uh, thinking that we, you know, I might live until I'm 95. If I retire at 65, that gives me 30 years that I've got to sit and twiddle my thumbs. I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. So, like, this whole notion that 65 is when you put your feet up and you go and, you know, travel is ridiculous. You know, so we need a different thinking, even about retirement or about old age. You know, the idea that when you're 90, you're crippled and frail and sit in an old age home and wait for death to come and pick you up. 
that's also crazy. You know, by then you might be a fully functioning person. You can facilitate workshops. You can do the work that you love. You can contribute. You can have a, a you can have a good level of well-being at that age, which you know, wasn't accessible even 20 years ago. Yeah. So we need a new future of aging, just as an example. Um, it's yeah, a, I think yeah. I think that's why you know you've got to be very careful about what people say to you and and the the kind of like milestones that you ought to be hitting or you know the things that you ought to have totally. achieved. It's such nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> it really, you know, it's interesting. You said um, the the space of all the the demographics of aging because that is a really interesting. Firstly, a kind of a human problem, but also I think plays right into our conversation about the future and kind of reimagining these things. So the country I live in, Spain, there is a massive demographic problem that's slowly kind of, you might know this, yeah, you know, sort of unraveling itself. So by the year 2050, w almost one in three people will be 65 years and older. Now, you know, this is going to create all sorts of completely unprecedented social sort of problems. You know, you're going to have way more people that aren't in the workforce that are going to have to be taking care of a dwindling, you know, um, kind of younger workforce who, who is working, but they're having less children, which also means that, you know, there's not enough money to pay for. So it's all of these kind of, you know, uh, possible futures, if you like, as well, that are going to be playing out. It's almost as if there's lots of possible futures but the, the direction of those futures are, are almost certainly going to happen. So, so it's an interesting sort of problem to kind of take on where, you know, we're need, does, you know, does this problem get reimagined from the individual where, like you said, we're going to need to completely rethink how those last 30, 40 years are going to be played out because mm -hmm. lifespans are only getting longer. Um, or does it come, you know, top down from the government trying to hand down some bureaucratic, uh, you know, sort of law? Yeah, I think it's such an excellent point you make there, Alex. And I think it's a it's a great example of why, you know, we need these new futures, because that's really what we're talking about is that things have changed so radically that that kind of like old aging narrative, the myth of aging, let's call it that, because there's a there's an underlying cultural myth of what aging looks like. Now, if you put that myth of aging and you combine it with our current definition of capitalism, the two don't go together. Because as you say, capitalism mm -hmm. only works if you've got like these young people who are creating more and more productivity, which yeah. fuels the, you know, the, you know, the government, the state in order to provide for the elderly who are old and frail. That's an old used Completely. future, which is no longer applicable. Yeah. So in many ways, the responsibility of that is with everybody. It's with government, it's with societies, it's with communities, it's with individuals. Um, and that's really what the tricky bit is, is that I suppose we're all kind of waiting for each other and going, oh, you know, who, who's gonna do it? You know, what, what do we do now? But in many ways, I guess what's required is the permission to have the creativity to just think about it in a different way. Uh, because, these kind of new futures are not based on like logic and uh, thinking, which is uh, academic or scientific. Those people will make a contribution as well. But what we need to do is really start to tap into what do we actually desire and what does that look like? Yes. It's not just about creating like a picture. It's like, what does that feel like? Who's going to be there? What does this place look like? 
how am I going to feel in this new place? We need to go to that level where it's not just a, a simple story. It's about a real vivid meditation on what it is that we want to create. Mm. And once we've got that, you can work backwards from there and go, right, in order to achieve that, what do we need? Yeah. Well, we need to start having better discussions around capitalism. What's the future of that? How's it going to be more equitable? How's it going to be more um, sustainable? I mean, the, the, those are just two points on capitalism that need serious focus. But I suppose, you know, people have to also demand it. People have to say like, you know what, I'm not going to let my mind be colonized uh, uh, by marketers or by advertisers or by the state that wants to keep me in fear so I keep on working or whatever it is. You have the choice. You have the agency. So mm. I suppose step one is reminding people that the future is open to be created. It's not determined. Nothing in the future is determined. Uh, we, we seem to assume that, that everything is just going to be as it has always been. But it can be different. We can choose differently. Um, I love that. And that's, yeah. that, that's really what, what our job is, is to take responsibility to do that. I think there's, there's a, 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 from my take and I, um, on what you're saying, it seems that there's, there's a choice to be made, which I think is an, an extremely important and, and I think often a new concept for the majority of people to, to kind of to wrap their heads around the fact that they have a choice in their lives and the kinds of things that are happening for them and not necessarily to them, and right. that they have an agency in choosing that moment by moment, but also that there's a level of creativity that's required to kind of suss things out, yeah. work with the variables in the moment, and then sort of create something, right? That <laughs> You create it. You don't just sort right. of like slog through it day to day. Um, John, I'm keen to get your thoughts. And I know that when I use the create word, I know that there's a big smile that comes on your face. So what do you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I We have lost, um, we keep using the word agency, I feel like uh, due to our educational system and supporting of the uh, industrial revolution and all that came with the birth of our cities, we lost touch with our creative ability. Um, and so now we're told what to do, what to believe, the when we retire, all the things that we're discussing, right? we've surrendered that. And with it has come the death, or I might be speaking too strongly here, I'll speak, speak strongly, bluntly. I feel like it's come with it has come the death of imagination or creativity, uh, where we don't value or understand the power of our human imagination when we do quiet and turn everything off and are with ourselves. That within the framework of who I am, I can do four things that I think we've lost touch of. And when we see a, um, a uh, revitalization of these four things, uh, it will change the face of humanity long term, specifically to be able to use my imagination uh, to, uh, which, by the way, establishes our life path experience, right? To, to learn from a position of curiosity, which curiosity is out the window right now. You, you can't be curious if you're going to be programmed, right? Yeah. So to a, a re resurgence of curiosity by fanning the flame of curiosity into humanity so that we can learn and then explore that which we've learned. So learn what you want to learn because you want to learn it, because you desire it. Then explore it. So learn, explore. When you explore, you're not learning anymore. You're playing with it. 
you're experimenting, you're noticing the changes. So learn, explore, then imagine, and then create. So when we learn, explore, imagine, create from a position of curiosity, we've reclaimed our agency. I don't need the government or societal approval. I can have this amazing expressive life, learning, exploring, imagining, and creating that which I choose to do. This is, in summary, is what we've lost. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was in Indianapolis, Indiana recently, uh, I, I was there for a year buying a bunch of real estate. And I, I, I got an apartment in their downtown. And I, I, I have this clear memory of walking in their downtown. They've done an amazing job of preserving the structures and the buildings that were built around 1895, all throughout their downtown. And they're stunning. They're jaw-droppingly gorgeous. And you sit there and I stare at them and go, how did they do that? Knowing the limitation of tools and we didn't have computers, the craftsmanship. And I stare and I stare at it and go, I don't think we could pull that off today because we've lost touch with that, that learn, explore, imagine, create side of, of humanity. But yeah. it's not forever gone. We will see it come back. Uh, we, we, it has to because we're in crisis right now. And, and the only way to fix the crisis is to get reconnected to, with, to who we are in the manner that I'm, I'm describing Mm. Yeah, I think that's so well put. Um, and funny enough, like you use the word reconnected. I think a lot of the new interesting futures work is about that idea of reconnecting with things that we have kind of lost touch with. Um, you know, I kind of want to say that, you know, the, the original futurists were the, the shamans in the tribe. And those were the people that were really given the responsibility to help guide and lead the tribe in a spiritual context. Yes. Because yes. The way that they felt is as a community, like their spiritual consciousness and their spiritual ev evolution was the way that they kept the tribe close and tight. And that's what their real strength was, was their, you know, interconnectedness and understanding how, together they were more powerful than than apart um, yes. and you know we we think about this whole idea of trust and we talk about communities and how people are trying to um, you know reconnect with communities and in many ways a lot of the interesting futures work is connected with spirituality uh, and we're starting to try and you know we're starting to try and see that actually, a spiritual aspect or a spiritual consciousness is also something which, which we've largely forgotten about. Yeah, because I it's a variable. Yeah. Organized religion has again kind of colonized that and people are yeah. understandably a little bit like skeptical about organized religion. But that doesn't should mean be. to say that, sure, but that doesn't mean to say that spirituality is no longer of use. And I suppose as, as individuals, we're starting to experiment with different you know, aspects of spirituality. But I think there's value in bringing those kind of mindsets into groups. Then how we collaborate as, as a group of people, you know, what, what are yeah. our, our values and the ethics that hold us together and those kind of frameworks and how do they play into what we're trying to create and build? Um, that kind of research is still in its infancy because I think a lot of it is discounted because you know you can't prove it empirically. Mm. Um, yeah. But there's value there. 
there, there definitely is. Absolutely. And, and um, especially when you start looking at the, I mean, not to go completely off a tangent, we'll need to definitely have a, a, another podcast, gentlemen, where we, where we pursue this in more kind of detail, uh, because there's, there's this, you know, there's this spiritual kind of element, but not only in a kind of a, uh, a sort of a, uh, you know, being seen through the lens as another variable with which to still play the same scientific kind of, you know, game, but also as its own value as an experience as well, you know, um, and like you said, shamans and so on, you know, um, you know let's not discount the, 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 the experience and the felt value of, uh, you know, plant medicines and so on, all sorts of other things that can push you in that direction, but we weren't yeah. going down <laughs> that road today, but I'm um, just to, just to maybe kind of round us off, um, and I'm keen to hear from each of you, what do you think are the kind of the, as a, as a hot round, um, are the three kind of tools, if you like that, an individual, an entrepreneur, a business owner, somebody trying to make sense of all of these exponential forces that seemingly seem to, you know, all be accelerating at the same time with the same sort of intense, intensity. What are, you know, two or three things that should be in their rucksack, that should be in their toolkit to sort of help navigate things, help to make sense of it, and also help to kind of, you know, distinguish the opportunity from what otherwise might just look like somebody else's crisis. John Cherry, I'll, I'll come to you first. Yeah, look, I think the, the first thing for me is that, you know, I've been banging on about it in this session, but for me, it might not seem like a tool, but the quietening of the mind is a practice, which I think is of huge value in the context of what's going on. As I said before, it's easy to find information. Uh, that, that's not the difficult bit. What you really need to do is, is get into the practice of quietening the mind, but also when you see information, try and see it in the context of, of, of where it's coming from or what is it, what is it a part of? Um, how how is this thing a part of something which is a bigger a bigger picture and how is that like changing in a broader perspective and, and what does that then mean for you um, you know just as an example we we often talk about um, sort of changes in consumer behavior and yeah you can read the granular detail about how people are, are changing and sales mechanics are are working and other sales mechanics aren't and there's data and there's insights and all that kind of stuff. But if you pan back and you just look at what people are really wanting, you know, consumers themselves are tired. They're also overwhelmed with choice. They are, you know, they are punch drunk with dopamine because that's what consumerism is. It's just feeding you dopamine and people are tired of it. You know, you've got to do bigger and more extraordinary things in order to get the same kind of hit. You know, before you would just buy a, you know, a 20 cents chappy at, <laughs> or a piece of bubble gum at your local shop. Now you've got to buy a Lamborghini. I mean, it's ridiculous. So in many ways, you've got to just see these broad, broad changes and understand how that is affecting your strategy and how you play into that into the future. How might that unfold into the future? So first one is go about having an information diet, first of all. Then when you do consume information, look at the, the big picture changes. And maybe a third one is if you're going to consume information, make sure that it is of very high quality. So, you know, as much as I, I think it's wonderful that everybody has a voice, I also think that not everybody should have a voice. 
I think there are a lot of people who should be on permanent mute because they talk crap. So, you know, if I can really urge you is be very cautious about what information you do consume. Make sure it's from a credible source. Uh, make sure that, you know, you're not getting all excited about something which you receive via WhatsApp. That, I suppose that's what I'm trying to get at is just make sure that before you allow it to colonize your thinking, that it is information of value and it is, you know, something which I think you, you know, you should pay attention to. Mm, excellent points. Wow. Punch drunk on dopamine, colonize your mind. We can start a business, bumper sticker business here, guys. I'm, yeah. uh, I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> uh, John, to you, to wrap up, what are the two or three things yeah. in your toolkit that, that you'd recommend to make sense of what's yeah. going on? And you framed it by saying to someone who is, you know, uh, a, an entrepreneur or someone you know, related to the yeah. work, you know, and, and the, the, the doing of life. So in, in that context, I, will, I would say the number one thing I would, I would encourage people to keep in their toolbox is something that they already have, but we forget it. It often falls to the bottom of our bag and needs to stay at the top. And um, it, it's the power of why. why. Why did you start what you started? Why, why, why in the beginning, why? That why that's connected to that deeper desire. Um, and and here's, here's why I, I, bring, I bring that up. Um, if, if you say to an entrepreneur or someone on a career path, you know, why are you doing this? I'll say, because I want to make money. Well, and then that's usually the accepted answer. And if you're doing it because you want to grow coin, you're, you've lost touch with your why. I, I've been a real estate agent for a number of years throughout the decades of my life. And I would go and help uh, I, I just buy volumes of homes uh, from for my for clients of mine, and I would sit down at, at, at a dining room table with someone, and I would say, "Tell me why you want to sell this house," and they would say, "Well, because I want all the money I can get," and their goal was sell the house to get money. But I learned the power of reconnecting them to their why by saying, "Yeah, but why? What are you going to do with the money when you sell your house?" And then once I asked that next level question, there was a story because I want to fill in the blank. And it was usually go somewhere, build something, start something. And then that became their, their new why. So when we keep our desire or our why as the main tool at the top of our bag, it'll be easier for you as an entrepreneur and someone going through life to not get caught up in the marketing, all everybody coming at to colonize your mind, right? No, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not looking at life that way. I'm doing this because this is my why. So keep your why. That's my number one recommendation. Know your why. And if you don't know your why, spend time to find your why. There's some great resources, some great literature on helping you find and discover your own why without somebody telling you what they think your why should be. That protect that. It's your why, not someone else's idea of what your why should be. Know your desire, know your why. Get help finding your why with somebody who can ask you really good open-ended questions that doesn't try to direct your why. Once you have it, keep it at the top of your visibility. My why sits right, right there. It's mounted on my wall right there. I can turn and see it right there. It's always in front of me and it guides my every decision I make. So I'm at peace and I have continuity in my life 
at all times. I know my why. Love that. Wow. Awesome. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for such a um, extemporaneous but fabulous conversation that we ended up having. I think we covered so much ground and definitely uh, a lot of seeds there for, for many more conversations in the future. Thank yeah. you. So awesome. John, joining. thank you. John, thank you. You, thank you gave you, me a lot. John. You gave me so much to think about. I've, been, I've taken great notes. Alex, That's thank you for hosting. Enough. We need yeah. quiet in your mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful.